Hello! Welcome to the first episode of Cognitive Gamer. I am your host, Steve Blessing, and I'm really excited to do this podcast as I'll be talking about two things that I'm really passionate about, cognitive psychology and games. Today's topic will be looking into how verbal items are stored and accessed in long-term memory and how that impacts how we play games like Codenames, Taboo, and Scategories. Before getting into that issue, though, let me take just a few minutes here at the outset of my first podcast to introduce myself. As I said, my name is Steve Blessing, and I received my PhD from Carnegie Mellon in Cognitive Psychology. I'm currently a professor of psychology at the University of Tampa, uh, but I've also been at the University of Florida. And also, I've worked in uh, private industry as a cognitive, cognitive scientist at a company called Carnegie Learning. I'm very interested in how cognitive psychology can be applied to everyday life. At Carnegie Learning, I worked on their Cognitive Tutor product, an intelligent-to-computer program that adapts to the student to make their learning more efficient. A current research project of mine has me developing a website for the Glazer Children's Museum to make going to the museum more interesting, fun, and educational for both parents and children. As I become more interested in games, it's just been natural for me to think about how our psychology influences us as we play the game and what goes on inside our head during play. I developed a course at the university called the Cognition of Game Playing that has students looking at exactly that issue. Speaking of games, I intend to cover all types of games as the podcast continues. Each podcast will cover a particular psychological phenomenon or issue, and then I'll select games that best exemplify that phenomenon. Sometimes it might be board games, like today, but other times it might be video games or games of chance or some other type of game. So today it's mostly board games, but a future show might center on, say, attention and first-person shooter video games. I intend to provide a good mixture of different types of games as we go along. As I said, today's topic is how verbal items are stored and accessed in long-term memory. This, of course, comes into play in a variety of different games, but particularly those that involve retrieving specific words and connections from your memory. A current popular game that does this is Codenames, but there are also classic games of Taboo and Scategories. In each of these, in one way or another, the players must think about the words they have stored in long-term memory, seeing where those connections might be so that a word can be guessed. How exactly does that happen? What do psychologists know about how words are retrieved from our memory banks? Let's start with an example from Codenames. Probably most of you are familiar with this game, but for those of you who aren't, let me explain a few things, just a little bit. In the game, there are two teams of spies. Each team has one spy master, and the other players on the team are field agents. Both teams are confronted with the same 5x5 five five grid of words, where each word represents a possible code word for an operative. Your team needs to determine which of these 25 people are also on your team. Eight or nine code names belong to each team. There are eight words that are innocent bystanders, and one of the cards is marked as the assassin. You don't want to pick your, have your team pick the assassin, or else the other team runs automatically. Of course, being spies, the spy master can't simply say the code names of your team spies, but can only provide hints. A hint consists of a single word and then a number. The word tries to relate to as many of the, your team's spies as possible, and the number tells the field agents how many words to try to guess. As an example, say the spy master wants to connect three different words, doctor, needle, and bed. There's at least one word that does this, hospital, so the spy master might say hospital three and hope their team points to the right words. 
It's a great game, and many people like it quite a bit. Now, to bring it to psychology, what governs whether the field agents will be able to make that connection that the spy master intends? It, of course, has a lot to do with how those items are stored in memory, and psychologists have done a lot of research in terms of memory. I imagine we'll talk a lot about memory in these podcasts. There are many different types of memory, and it's a fascinating, interesting subject. For this discussion, let's limit ourselves to just long-term memory. This is the type of memory that allows us to store information for a long period of time, years maybe, without it being in our conscious mind, but then retrieve it after that storage to act on it in some meaningful way, like to use in a clue in code names or to blurt out an answer in taboo. Most people probably have this vague notion that items in our memory are connected to one another. It's what allows us to have a conversation that goes from talking about what we had for dinner, which leads us to then talking about one of our favorite restaurants, which ends up talking about the city where that restaurant might be in. All of those things are connected in our memory, and thinking about one leads to thinking about the other. To be good at the types of games that we're talking about depends on the players making use of those connections. What do psychologists know about how those items are stored and retrieved from memory? This is a topic that has been examined since about as long as there have been psychologists. Herman Ebbinghaus was one of the first psychologists and did his research in the late 1800s. He was most interested in how items are forgotten in memory and the time course of forgetting and relearning, and so mainly used nonsense syllables in his research so that the stimuli, the words, wouldn't interfere with each other. Of course, code names and the other games use real words, which is much more interesting because there are a lot of connections between those words. Long-term memory is what a psychologist calls highly associative. That is, items in our memories are associated or connected to one another. We know about bananas, and bananas are associated with the color yellow, other fruits like apples and pears, chimpanzees perhaps, because they like to eat them, and maybe if you're a runner, you know that they are considered a superfood. Now, until I mentioned bananas just a few seconds ago, they were not in your conscious thought or what a psychologist might refer to as working memory. We'll talk much more about working memory in a later podcast because that's a whole other interesting psychological construct. But for now, at the mere mention of banana by me, you are able to retrieve it from your long-term memory and start thinking about related issues to bananas. Once an item has been retrieved from a long-term memory and within your working memory, a psychologist will refer to that item as having been activated. Activation, then, is a quantity associated with items in your long-term memory. The more activation that item has, the more likely it is to be retrieved from your long-term memory and the quicker it is to be retrieved. Every long-term memory item has an activation value associated with it, and once that item gets above a certain level, it can enter our conscious awareness. A lot of research has investigated what affects those activation values. Indeed, some psychologists, those that really like math and computers, have gotten so particular at it that they have created mathematical and computer simulations of how activation in long-term memory happens and how that affects what people retrieve from their memories. We won't go into those specifics here, but if you're interested, I'll put some additional reading up on my website, cognitivegamer.com, in the show notes for this episode. For now, appreciate the fact that we can be reasonably precise as to how this notion of activation happens to our long-term memory items, and that this will come into play when your team is trying to figure out which word to point to in a game of code names, or what word to say in taboo or categories. There are three main things that affect how much activation an item has in long-term memory. Practice, recency, 
and what we'll concentrate on here, the spread of activation to related items. Before we cover spread of activation, though, let's talk about those other two, practice and recency. I believe you'll find these two pretty straightforward. First, there's practice. The more practice that an item receives, the more activation it will have. I think that that just stands to good reason. The more practice, the easier it is to recall that item. For instance, if I ask you for your birthday, that's extremely well practiced, and you'll be quick to tell me. But if I ask you for your mom's birthday, you'll hopefully still be able to retrieve it, but probably a bit more slowly than your own birthday. It doesn't have as much practice as your own birthday. We're only talking fractions of a second here, probably, but in terms of shedding light into how memory works, those fractions of a second matter. As another example, in looking at people's retrievals of math facts, people are really good at retrieving simple math facts that involve small numbers, like 2 plus 3 and 1 plus 4. They do those quickly and without a lot of errors. But for slightly larger math facts, but still those that involve retrieval, like 9 plus 8 or 7 plus 6, it takes them slightly longer and they're more likely to have a retrieval error. Again, this is due to the amount of practice that those smaller math facts have over the math facts of the larger numbers. This can, of course, impact game playing as those pieces of information that you have seen and practiced a lot in a particular game will be easily brought to mind. The aspect that affects activation I mentioned second, recency, is also pretty straightforward. The more recently an item that is stored in long-term memory has been accessed, the more activation it will have, and the easier and more likely to be remembered. This is why a game like Monikers works so well. In that game, players go through describing words in the first round to get the teammates to guess them. All of those items are now going to have a lot more activation associated with them. You use the same words in the next two rounds, so in those next rounds, you are primed, so to speak, and much more ready to provide the correct words due to the recency of having used that word. Elizabeth Loftus, who is a big name in memory research, did a classic study back in 1973 looking at how recency affects activation of items in long-term memory. The participants had a very easy task to do. They essentially played categories. On the computer screen, a category name would flash along with a letter. The participants had to say the example of that category starting with that letter, just like categories. Loftus timed how long it took people to come up with the example. On the very first go, it took 1.53 seconds, on average, if what they saw was fruit B and then said banana. They then went through many, many trials of playing this game, or participating in the experiment. Loftus did a clever, a clever thing, though, in that she would repeat certain categories after certain intervals. For instance, some people might see fruit S on the very next round, but others might not see fruit S until two rounds after that had already passed. These other intervening rounds did not involve the category fruit. On average, it took people 1.21 seconds to say strawberries for fruit S if it appeared immediately after fruit B, but 1.33 seconds to say strawberries if there are two intervening items. Notice both of those times are less than the original 1.53 seconds to come up with the original example, banana, but there is a small but significant difference between the times for the zero intervening items and two intervening items. Again, 100 milliseconds isn't a lot of time, but that difference is statistically significant and does shed light on how memory works. And recency of practice affects how quickly and accurately items are retrieved from long-term memory.
Okay, so that's two of the three things that I mentioned, practice and recency. Those are fine and interesting, as you can see from the data, do affect how items are retrieved from long-term memory. However, it's the third factor that affects items in memory, spread of activation, that I wanted to concentrate on, as I feel it comes into play most often in types of games that we're talking about here. In the banana example I mentioned previously, I said that our memory of banana is connected to the, to the color yellow, probably green as well. Other fruits, such as mangoes, apples, and pineapples, along with other connections to banana that we may have. I had banana today for lunch, so I would have connections between bananas and the other items that I ate. There are hundreds of thousands of connections between our items and long-term memory, where one could find a path between essentially any item in our memory to any other item. Once one item in memory is activated, that activation will flow to related items. How much activation flows and the time course of how it flows will be related to the strength of the connections between those two items. Items can be strongly connection, connected, like bananas in yellow, or more weakly connected, perhaps bananas in green. Those connection strengths will have to do with practice, mostly, like discussed above. That spread of activation between items happens beneath conscious awareness. It just does its thing. You'll be thinking bananas, and then all of a sudden, may start thinking of this restaurant where you had a particularly good dish of bananas foster. Remember, activation affects the speed and probability of retrieval of items from long-term memory. The experiments and examples I gave for practice and recency mostly had to do with speed, but with spread, let's consider the probability of retrieval. Let's play an anagram game. I'm going to give you a simple four-letter word to unscramble. As soon as I've given you the letters and you've unscrambled it, say it out loud or write it down. Ready for the letters? Here they are. A, C, O, T. I'll give you a few seconds. A, C, O, T. Think you got it? How did you unscramble that? How many of you got coat? C-O-A-T. That's the word I would guess the majority of people got first. Now then, but how many people might have gotten taco, T-A-C-O, though? Obviously, both are right. I do a demo in some of my classes where this is the second part of the demo. In the first part, I give half my students list A of words to unscramble, and the other half get list B. The words in both lists are about the same difficulty to unscramble, and there are an equal number of words, six, but the list A words are all articles of clothing, sweater, shoes, vest, whereas the list B words are all types of food, pizza, chili, spaghetti. After they spend 30 to 45 seconds attempting to unscramble whatever list they got, I then put up on the projector the word I gave you all, A-C-O-T, with the instruction to unscramble it as quickly as possible and to write down the first thing that comes to mind. This is a great demo because usually without exception, the people who were unscrambling the articles of clothing mostly unscramble their target word as coat and almost none as taco. And the people unscrambling the food items are the ones that mostly get taco, though with a few coats. The explanation is straightforward. If you are unscrambling food items, that activation is spreading between all related words, mostly foods, like taco. So when you are asked to unscramble A, C, O, T, the probability that it would be unscrambled as taco increases quite noticeably. Let's bring all this talk of activation back to games. If you are the spy master in code names, or you're trying to get your team to guess a word in taboo, your job, 
cognitively speaking, is to get the activation of the target word to be greater than the activation than any other word in your teammate's memory. That is what will hopefully get your team to guess the right word. Use clues that increase that activation via the spreading process. Finding that one clue that links items together in a game of code names can be very satisfying because you can make that spread of activation work in your field agents' minds and have them point to the right clues. That's also essentially what is happening when you play trivia games like Trivial Pursuit or Ritz and Ragers as you try to retrieve facts and figures from your long-term memory. This may be obvious, but this is why playing these games like Taboo, Monikers, and others with family and friends is easier than playing with strangers because you have more insight into what items are connected in their memory. I'm able to give a clue in Taboo to my kids like, this is the thing that you two don't like to do at Disney World, but mom and me do, and have a reasonable probability of getting the right answer. Roller coaster. Well... I hope you have enjoyed the topic for the day's podcast and have learned something about how your mind processes information. In the next podcast, I'll stay on memory for another episode, but we'll concentrate more on visual memory and representations. Between now and then, if you have any questions or comments, please email me at steve at cognitivegamer.com. I would love to hear from you, and if you have a question, I may answer it in a later podcast. Also, be sure to like my Facebook page, Cognitive Gamer, and to visit the website cognitivegamer.com. Until next time, remember to think about what you play and have fun doing it.